0: Hello, I'm Andrew Harrison. Welcome to The Bunker. How do you make £3.6 billion disappear or at least vanish into limbo where it can't be reached? That's what happened in 2019 with the spectacular collapse of the investment funds run by Neil Woodford, infamous rock star investor who went from outsider trainee to a business figure so powerful that he could decide the fates of CEOs and major companies. For 30 years, Woodford was the man who couldn't stop making money and he couldn't stop spending it either on luxury cars, racehorses and real estate. The story of how it all went wrong and how 400,000 people lost fortunes, sometimes their life savings, is grippingly told in Built on a Lie, The Rise and Fall of Neil Woodford and The Fate of Middle England's Money, which is out now. It's a bizarre tale of greed and arrogance, and there's even a walk-on part for Andrea Ledsom, who designs Woodford's generous pay packet. The author, the award-winning FT journalist Owen Walker, is here with me today to talk about it. Hello, Owen, how are you?
1: Very good, thank you. Thanks so much for having me today. Really looking forward to uh, to spending some time with you guys.
0: Well, thanks for coming on because this is very personal to me because I lost 100 quid in the Woodford collapse and <laughs> I don't think I'll ever see it again. I'm hoping you can help me make sense of this personal trauma.
1: Well, hopefully, I mean, hundred hundred quid goes a long way these days, but uh, yeah, no, hopefully, we can we can maybe fill in some gaps.
0: So we, we've all become accustomed to reading ridiculously huge figures in the course of the COVID pandemic. Nobody really knows the difference between a billion and thirty billion anymore. We're completely dizzy with it. But the huge figures, mm-hmm. like three point six billion, that, that disappeared, or rather, were frozen when Woodford's asset management fund collapsed what is the scale of this in the terms of the investment industry is this you know how, how big a deal was this
1: well in, in in pure monetary terms 3.6 billion it wasn't a huge amount i mean he, five years earlier he'd been managing nearly 10 times that amount in his previous company so in just pure numbers terms it wasn't the biggest uh fund or or, or you know the, the, the biggest scandal by pure monetary terms But what was really significant about this was the number of people involved. You mentioned... You know, four hundred thousand odd. We don't have a clear number. It could be anywhere up to half a million. And mm. as you say, you are one of these people. You, it may be a hundred pounds to you. In many senses, it's my tragedy, really. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm glad we can we can really air it today. But um, it, it wasn't. And you know, I think we hear a lot about you know financial scandals and, and people losing billions and this and the other. Uh, but in this case, this was individuals. This was people saving for their pension. It was people putting a little bit aside every week to make sure that they could retire earlier just doing the right thing and they would given their handed their money over to this guy and um you know it's it's uh, for a lot of it still frozen i think just the, the sheer numbers of people involved you know when this became uh, an issue uh, in parliament there was a sort of a the Treasury Select Committee started looking into it and two people on that panel of about a dozen people had to say, sorry, I, I'm conflicting this because I'm actually invested in this fund. And, you know, having spoken to this book, to, to friends and relatives and stuff, it's it's just amazing how many people actually uh, ended up trapped in this fund.
0: Yeah, Steve Baker was invested, wasn't he? Yeah,
1: yeah, man, Steve Baker. Yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 he was there, definitely.
0: Is it the reach of this, the fact that it goes so much, as you you say, into into Middle England that that makes this different? I mean, is it possible, is, is the nature of the collapse different? What, you know, what exactly went wrong?
1: What went wrong is essentially Neil Woodford for, for 25, twenty five, twenty six years at his previous company, Investco Petrol, became this this superstar investor, and and everyone would, would would talk at the golf course or you know wherever they'd hang out and say, oh, you know, I'm I'm invested with Neil Woodford. Oh, that's great. I'll I'll do the same thing. It's very popular in the personal finance pages. You know, you pick up the, the Daily Mail on a Sunday, the Mail on Sunday, and it tells you to you know invest your ISA in, in Neil Woodford's fund, and that was absolutely great for for 20-odd years. He then went, uh, started his own business up, fell out with the the guys at Invesco Petrol, and so he decided to set his own business up. And when they launched, they thought, you know, Neil uh, manages £33 billion uh, at Invesco, let's try and get a slice of that. So they set the business up to draw as much of that money over as possible, and it worked incredibly well. However, Woodford had changed his investment approach, and over the Subsequent five years, he started investing in ever more riskier uh, companies, startups, tech companies, uh, science companies, companies that needed an awful lot of funding. That the, the people who invested in money with him for so long weren't used to this, isn't what they'd really signed up for. And so when the fund was suspended nearly two years ago, You know, having invested in all these very risky companies that demanded a lot of uh, steady flows of cash running into them, a lot of these people were caught out. And you know, you may be one of those people who who just suddenly, what am I doing investing in these? You know, startups. This isn't what I would have put my retirement money into.
0: One of the most amazing things is he he goes so indiscriminately optimistic, shall we say, on startups (laughs) that he invested in one company that's developing cold fusion. Yes. Which is kind of almost science fiction physics,
1: isn't it? Yes, absolutely. This this is industrial heat. This is. uh... A company of very much at the fringes of, of of science, and you know, I think most mainstream scientists would would, would suggest it's uh, it, it's just completely implausible, uh, illogical science. But he, he went in he went in big on that company. Um, you know, th- there were others who who had invested in in this business. Brad Pitt was one. You know, I think they they thought this is a company that has the potential to completely change energy sources and, and you know in, in many respects probably ha- had an eye on a greener energy future for them they were they were maybe chucking in a you know half a million or so Woodford went went much bigger than this and it wasn't his money he w- he was mm-hmm. investing and, and that's all that's all gone really.
0: Your reports on this for the Financial Times won you several awards uh, business Journalist of the year 2020 you know Society of Editors press awards when you're looking at this material what were you thinking there's things I can do in the form of a book here that I can't do in, in daily reports. So, you know, there's another way of telling the story.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, when, when you're writing news stories, you're, you're pretty much confined to, you know, four or five hundred words, maybe seven or eight hundred words maximum for a news story. Me and a colleague, my my former boss, we we end up writing a, a a much longer piece. It's about four thousand words, but that was really the upper limit of of where we could go with this piece in 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 terms of one article. And we'd written so much about it over over a you know a period of time. I just thought it was writing a book was a great way to to bring a lot of those stories together to tell tell the whole narrative and to get stuck into some of the other areas which we hadn't really been able to do in our reporting. You know having done the, re- the reporting myself, I'd, I'd sort of picked up quite a lot of original documents and, you know, a lot of nuance to this story, uh, which I hadn't really been able to to get out in into my uh, sort of day-to-day reporting. So a book was just a great way to, to sort of, not only get into those documents and the kind of the story behind the story, if you like, but also mm-hmm. to um, to kind of to tell a nice sort of narrative flow to make it very readable for an audience who aren't necessarily as engaged with this topic.
0: Exactly, how powerful was, was Neil Woodford? I mean, you describe him at one point as being the biggest single shareholder in some of Britain's biggest companies, and at one point he, he forces out the AstraZeneca boss, just kind of almost on his his own say so.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he had um, you know not only was he the most Uh, powerful investor in terms of, you know, people putting money into his funds, because of the size of his funds, he he had huge stakes in FTSE 100 companies, often, you know, as you mentioned, the the largest shareholder. So he could, he, he really had the power to call on boards on CEOs to to basically do his bidding if he was upset with uh, an approach a company made one call from from where he worked in henley which is you know a, a bit of a, a very nice place to live but a bit of a backwater in the investment industry uh, and he could he could call chief executives to to come down to his office uh, and basically turn up to be told off, basically, for whatever was he wanted them to, to change direction on. He had a, a lot of power. There was um, a big uh, defence uh, contract between um, a large UK uh, defence business and a French one. And he he basically pulled the pulled the string on it, saying he, he didn't think it was in the best interest of his investment. And that, that deal didn't go through. He had an awful lot of power, an awful lot of sway, and I think there were there were CEOs up and down the the uh, the country who, uh, when their phones rang and it had the sort of the, the Henley dial tone at the the, uh, the beginning of the call, would would make sure they were sat down because it, they could be in for a rollicking.
0: He's quite a fascinating character. He is. He's very much a bully. Certainly at school he was he was he was a bully. He's very ostentatious with his money. The tales of people being bowled out in the office and, um, you know, superiors effectively being kind of you know completely sidelined just by his force of personality. A remarkable but weirdly he he does start out as an exceptionally cautious fellow, doesn't he? And he, he his key moment is he avoids piling into tech stocks at the end of the 90s when everybody else is piling in and this is sort of almost proof of concept that he's got the the acumen or the instinct where everybody else lacks it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was very much the making of of Woodford. Yeah, up to then he was a, a kind of fairly well known fund manager who you know had a had, had a middling or, or yeah fairly decent uh, track record. Right up to the dot com crisis, he decided. Um, you know, with hindsight, it was it was a very wise decision that a lot of these companies were heavily inflated that they had little more than an IP address and uh, maybe URL but but not much more to them and they were getting incredible valuations and he thought this isn't really where I should be putting my money there was an awful lot of money flowing into these businesses and, and at the time you say it was cautious but um, I mean it, it it was in one sense but another sense uh, people looked at and thought why are you avoiding uh, investing in these companies it's it's free money at the minute you're you're you know you're being obstinate and you're sick into your guns and and his fund was trailing the rest of the pack for for a good while running up to that because he had made this decision ultimately he got proved completely correct and that was very much the making of him people thought this guy really does know what he's talking about uh you know he's avoided heavy losses when when everyone else is losing their shirts and um he's come out of it very very strong and 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 that very much was the the beginning of this this awe around him that he was was some kind of soothsayer and he dragged that he kept that going throughout um you know the, the sort of the following 20 odd years and it all came you know, tumbling down a couple of years ago.
0: Did you ever meet him in the course of uh, your various reporting jobs?
1: I, I haven't actually met him. I've, I've uh, obviously I've tried to speak to him on several occasions when he was in, in his real pomp and, um, you know, launched his new business and when he was really trying to, to court journalists and would, you know, invite them for, for uh, dinners, uh, you know, sort of lavish dinners in London. I happened to be in New York at the time, so I, I missed that period <laughs> where he was very sort of approachable and open. And then, uh, you know, when I sort of picked the story up at, at that point where he, he was very uh, unapproachable, shall we say.
0: The impression I got from sort of, you know, talking to people around this was that, the general impression of it was he's, he, he's, he's quite an awful human, but we like him because he gets results. And that seems to be something that's quite part of the, the, you know, the finance mythology, you know, is it a short route from I'm a dick, but I get results to, I get results because I'm a dick. Is there a kind of a, a, a belief in that culture that you've, you know, nice guys don't win?
1: Well, it's a it's a, phlo- a phenomenally competitive culture. Woodford himself is is a, is a sportsman. You know, he, uh, you know, at school he you know, he played for the the, the rugby team. He, he did javelin at county level. He played for the the local rugby team. He, he was known at. Uh, at grammar school, as a sportsman, and then he went off. You know, did rugby at university, and then played amateur rugby ar- uh, there afterwards. You know, he spent his his free times in gyms. He he's latterly got into uh, horse eventing. You know, as a kind of a way to really uh, let off steam at weekends. First and foremost, he is a competitor, and he he is in it to win. And and that is that is a trait um, which you know probably the most successful uh, investors have because you know to be that dedicated and to to sort of spend that much time doing this stuff is, you know, you need to have the motivation to to beat your rivals. And that's, that's kind of what he is. So you do get that very sort of testosterone fueled environment in uh, the investment industry. And yeah, I suppose for many people, that's the way that's the way to get ahead. You know, there are kind of moves at the minute to make it, uh, you know, a little bit more approachable, a little bit more nice around the edges, or at least appear to be but uh, you know, that competitive edge is still what really drives uh, the business.
0: Andrew Bailey, who's now governor of the Bank of England, oversaw Woodford's reign and also the London capital and finance scandal and loads of other uh, dodgy carries on in the city, including self-investment, pension providers, scamming people into bad investments. On the back of all this, is Andrew Bailey really fit for purpose?
1: Well, yeah, as you say, he went from a series of huge scandals at the Financial Conduct Authority and strolled into a job as governor of the bank of england arguably one of the biggest jobs in the british economy really there was no um other um serious contender to take over from mark carney as as the governor of the bank of england so he kind of got the job by default despite these um ongoing scandals now as you mentioned that the, the london capital and finance uh issue that that that's kind of recently re-emerged and this was a another huge scandal where people lost you know hundreds of thousands or millions of pounds what uh, that uh, investigation has shown that there were real flaws within the financial conduct authority under bailey and th- these flaws were repeated in various other um, scandals in, including the woodford one and bailey's time at the, uh, at the bank of england has really been dogged by these ongoing scandals and and they they refused to go away for him
0: so woodford and his and his partners took tens of millions out of the business while it was spiraling the plug hole and um you know, in some of the most ostentatious spending that you can imagine for somebody who's playing with other people's money, they charged fees while the, while the funds were collapsing. You describe his life and his lifestyle as a, as a kind of a rock star fund manager. Did you ever look at it and think, you know, it's in part, it's my profession that's created this, you know, I am a journalist, we cover this world. And occasionally we build people up to be these kind of omnipotent super gods of money.
1: I, I think that's there's certainly a very strong argument argument for that. You know, as you say, um, Woodford for uh, you know a, a, after this he, he survived the. You know, we're talking just after Easter here. You know, he he came back to life uh, after the uh, the dot com <laughs> bubble, and uh, people were really sort of thinking this. You know, this is this guy survived it, and that really fueled his story over the next twenty years. And and who was writing those stories? It was journalists. You know, I think you know it, i've been a financial journalist now for a fair amount of time and you know we, we typically deal with numbers you know we're looking at numbers how many billions how many millions and this that, and the other so we're often looking for a nice human angle to spice up a story and, and woodford was very much a an interesting character you know he as as you mentioned he, he drove all these fast cars he liked rock music he didn't he, he didn't wear a sort of a suit he, he dressed up like a you know, a nightclub bouncer. He played rugby. He was in very much sport. He was an interesting character. Uh, you know, somebody who you could kind of, you could create stories around, create a narrative around, and, and certainly this idea that, as he had done with the um, dot com bubble, he did again with the uh, the financial crisis. He had uh, he had voided banks in the run up to that, so you know, there was certainly an aura around him and, and and journalists, you know, I think really enjoyed covering him as a story themselves. And so, yes, I think there's certainly some blame can be attributed at, uh, at the media for, for, you know, pumping up this guy. After every kind of major city scandal, people like
0: me on the outside, we tend to think that, you know, the world of money never learns from its mistakes. It just gets us to pay for them. Do you think the Woodford collapse has actually changed anything? Uh, you know, I, I, we always hear, you know, lessons have been learned.
1: There are some lessons that have been learned, though for how long they stay learned is is another matter. I mean, what ultimately brought down Woodford is this idea of liquidity. Now, liquidity in investment management is basically how much cash you've got. So if you have lots of people saying, I want my money back, do you have the cash available to, to give them that money back? Now, what happened with Woodford is he had invested a lot of his money, or the fund's money, I should say, in these Small startups or businesses that needed a steady stream of of money, and when people ask for their for their money back, the obvious thing to do would be, oh, I'll just sell these companies, my stakes in these companies, get the money and and pay them back. He wasn't able to do that because there wasn't a ready market for these. These weren't companies that were listed on large stock markets there wasn't a a ready market available to pick up those shares so this was a kind of a classic liquidity trap now liquidity traps have been around for as long as there's been money really so we we kind of always tell ourselves each time there's been a big financial scandal and people have lost money, oh, next time we we won't get caught in a liquidity trap, though uh, you know, it happens time and time again. And um this is just the latest example. And I think, you know, that there are other examples like that. There's, you know, I talk about in the book, some of the the lessons that may be learnt from this, but it's just a question of of how long people's memories are because there are several themes in this book, and 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 the story of Woodford, which kind of reappear again and again in in our kind of the history of finance. It's about that kind of that collective memory and how long we can we can hold on to those those kind of uh, those uh, lessons. All this has happened before, and all this will happen again, like Battlestar
0: Galactica. Woodford's uh, trying to make a comeback to relaunch further financial vehicles. If he does relaunch, do you think? that he should either have to refund some of his investors or perhaps give them free shares in his new funds to compensate for what he mismanaged?
1: I think it's an interesting question. I think you would have to ask, I mean, you, you are one of these victims yourself, you know, <laughs> w- w- would you be happy uh, investing with this guy again? I, you know I, know, I know there are still, uh, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people who've, who've been caught out by this, there are still many who who still believe in him and still think well this was you know he, he's he's done very well for you know 25 30 years this was a a bad spell for him i'm happy to kind of see him you know see what he does next so you know there could be some people who would go down that route now what woodford has said about this new venture and i i very much doubt it will actually go ahead because there's not a regulator in the in the uh in the western world who would touch him at the minute but uh, what he has said is if, if he were to set up a new venture, it would be for professional investors only. So it wouldn't be the same people who have invested in his funds. And I think that's that's the only way he could do it because, you know, he still wants to invest in, you know, in science startups, in 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 small businesses, um, which aren't really appropriate for the, the mass market to be investing in.
0: That's what I found really kind of ironic about it, that beneath this ridiculous waste of money and this ostentation and, and the greed, the kind of... The investment ideas were sort of quite idealistic. Yeah. Can we invent something amazing and new that's going to change the world? And it it made me um, sort of connected with the fact that for all of his wild spending, it seemed like you know, I, was, I was never quite sure what he wanted from life apart from just more. Do you know what I mean? It's as if he's trying yeah. to fill a hole in his, uh, you know, in his picture of the world, maybe that, you know, I've got all this money, but what does any of it mean? By the way, it's not my money.
1: I, I think I think you are exactly right I, he's a complex character he's, he's not one-dimensional and that's again one of the reasons I wanted to do this book because you know there are there's a lot of sort of pen portraits of him you know where he's you know, he's money obsessed and he you know he wants Jesus to just fritter away on expensive cars and you know large country mansions but actually as you say there there is a side to him that actually wants to change the world with with the companies he invests in he, he very much looks for businesses that have the ability as we we talked about earlier about industrial heat you know have the potential and i stress the word potential here to make life changing changes to to people's health to the environment to to all sorts of things and and that is one one of the themes with a lot of the companies uh, he invested in except you know it wasn't his money uh, mm-hmm. he was putting him uh, putting taking very large stakes in these companies and ultimately a lot of them were, were moonshots
0: Yeah, would you trust your retirement fund to Tony Stark? I don't think I would. (laughs) Exactly. Owen Walker, thanks for joining me. Built on a Light is a fascinating and in many respects terrifying read. It's out now in Penguin Business Books. Listeners, thanks for listening. Do follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss out on our daily releases. And if you're looking for a sound investment, then why not back the bunker on Patreon? We guarantee not to buy Porsches from the proceeds. Remember, the value of your podcast may go down as well as up. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
1: The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofrenievaich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.